And welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And this week, I welcome the incredible John Lestrange. But before we get to my guest, I do want to thank my patron supporters, Rob, Robert, MJ, and Case. If you two would like a shout-out on the podcast or one of the other incredible rewards I offer on my Patreon for throwing me a little support, you can go to patreon.com slash stormageddon. Um, we have tiers from a dollar to three dollars to five dollars, all the way up to fifty and a hundred. Um, any kind of support you want to throw my way helps me to grow this podcast and all the other projects that I work on. So thank you. Uh, now uh, back to John Lestrange, historian, nerd, really charismatic, handsome dude, and a good friend of mine came on the show to talk about his two books, as well as his love of a very great many nerdy properties. So. Um, in the episode, we talk about both the books, a history of genocide in cartoons and a history of genocide in video games. Both books are available on Amazon.com, as well as a lot of other re- retailers. Definitely go check those out. But enough about me and John and on with the episode. show the audio quality was terrible they played it off really well this is brilliant and no, no one else can ever do this now because they already they already did it um they had a witch come in before they started airing the episode and cursed them with technical difficulties oh yes i remember hearing about this um, which is great. a brilliant way to get around our audio sucks and like it wasn't it wasn't that bad like it was listenable it just like it was a little tinny yeah because like live shows are, are terrible to record yeah, um, the I mean, and that said, surprisingly, like the live episode we did of Reignite came out better than I thought it would. Yeah. Just because I was recording without microphones, without a soundboard, just recording us in an open room, and it actually still sounded okay. Yeah, uh, it doesn't hurt that I have fairly expensive audio equipment. That no, definitely no, helps. That that will always help. Um, but uh, well, thank you for being on the show, John. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show, um, John Lestrange, the historian. That is what my friends call me. Uh, none of your friends call you that. I was about to say you don't know, but you would know. I would know. Um, so it's, I'm really excited to have you on because I've actually, I mean, I've known you for a while and I adore your wife. Um, I adore you and your whole family, actually, now that I've met them all. Um, oh, yeah, you have. You've met I, all of them. I have met you all of met them. you met my infamous brother. Your infamous brother. Yeah. Who's very handsome, I must say. I know, it's hard don't for you. Don't tell him I said that, but <laughs> you do great. It's true, yeah. <laughs> Well, hopefully he doesn't listen. Um, but um, so you've been a historian for a while. You're a teacher as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you recently put out a book, the uh, Genes- the history of genocide in video games. But your first book was the history of genocide in cartoons. And so what, the first thing I wanted to ask is what made you want to start with talking about cartoons? I mean, other than being a big nerd, which I know you are, um, and we're in similar age ranges, so we grew up with the same variety of cartoons from all the way back to Looney Tunes to Tiny Tunes to Gargoyles and DuckTales and X-Men and Spider-Man. So what kind of inspired you to, to take on looking at the history of that? So this is actually a very appropriate first question. I prepared this answer because as everyone who's ever written a book does, I imagined what it would be like to be interviewed on some big TV show <laughs> like Oprah because she's going to add me to her book club. Um, so this, I actually came by this by accident. Okay. I had just finished, or I was, I was in the process of finishing my master's thesis, and uh, I was also rewatching Avatar: The Last Airbender because it's an amazing show, and it is. I can never get enough of it. Uh, it's one of two cartoons ever to win a Peabody Award for Public Service. That and Steven Universe just got one. Oh wow! Awesome. But um, I had posted um, about uh, something in season two. Uh, the Dai Li in the Earth Kingdom. Uh, so Dai Li is not only the name of the organization, but it's also the name of a real person mm-hmm. uh, who was active from the 1920s to the 1940s in China as part of the uh, nationalist secret police. Um, and the Dai Li in the show have a secret underground re-education camp in prison underneath the lake called Lake Laogai. 
So Laogai is a Mandarin word that means reform through labor and is the name of actual real-life Chinese prison camps that may or may not still exist. They classified information on that back in the 90s, so oh, wow. we don't know. So I made a post about that on Facebook, and then someone uh, went into the comments and said, uh, so when are you going to write your book? And I thought, <laughs> huh, that would actually be a pretty fun book to write. I obviously had a starting point in Avatar, uh, so I, I finished my thesis and I was like in like research writing mode because I'd been doing it for 12 months straight. So right. I thought, let's keep the streak going, let's start doing this. So I curated the list and I uh, didn't have a lot of like, you know, making money work that winter. So I just spent 10 weeks watching cartoons and <laughs> writing about them. Uh, and I got a first draft done very, very quickly because I had nothing else to do but <laughs> watch cartoons all day and tell people that, no, this is for work. <laughs> um, and so how long from start to finish did the book take to write and then release? Um, actually, it didn't take that long because I self-published it through uh, First Create Space, and their uh, system is, is so easy to work with. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. It's now all just Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing. Gotcha. Um, but uh, I started in the winter, so I want to say I started like early January, and it was published by October that same year. Wow, that's so it great. Took me about nine and a half ish months. I imagine if you're writing something that's nonfiction, um, just based on research, it's probably. Easier to an extent because you're just kind of getting your thoughts in order. There's no, I mean, there's sort of still a narrative as far as you want to flow to the book, but I imagine it's much easier than creating a brand new world and original characters. I have tried writing uh, fiction and it is uh, phenomenally difficult to keep all of your plots straight and to not just write yourself into a corner where you don't know where to go next. Uh, and writing nonfiction can be very difficult if you have to go out there and hunt for massive amounts of research. Right. But I just finished uh, a, a you know three-year master's program in Holocaust and Genocide Studies, so I had all of that research readily available. A lot of sections in the book are just cannibalized from my thesis to avoid having to retype things I'd already done. Sure. And then any other research was literally just watching cartoons, so... That process was really streamlined because I had my resources available. I didn't have to find them. I just had to write about them. And what's really interesting about this book, so first going back to Avatar, I think it's really fascinating that you start with Avatar yep. because as far as cartoons go, like I was one of those people when Avatar first came out when I was a snot-nosed brat who was like, oh, kitty cartoon, this looks dumb. Why would I watch this? And like to, to, to my credit, defense, whatever, the first couple seasons are fairly silly. There's some serious stuff, but the characters are fairly silly and goofy. Oh, yeah. It's only as the show goes on that it ramps up. And by, like, the 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 final episode, which I won't spoil, I guess, if people haven't seen it, but the final episode of that series brought me to tears. That final battle is oh, just... It was so intense. It's so intense. And, like, and it, of course, made me a fan for life. I watched Korra, though I've not seen all of The Legend of Korra. Um, I think I've only seen the first season and a half. But... I love the storytelling because of just how how I grew up watching anime and, and Avatar very much feels like a true Western anime in its structure, its scope, and its style. And this idea that it looks like it's for kids, but it's actually got a lot of adult themes that might go over kids' head to a point, but most adults will be like, wow, this is pretty heavy. And to feature it in your book, I mean, there is a lot of death and destruction in that story, just by nature of the Avatar and how how cyclical it is, and yeah. like when things go bad, you know, this idea that this hero will rise and 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 take take the lead and save everybody. And I guess that's a big part of why you chose to start with it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Avatar and uh, Full Metal Alchemist were the uh, ones that I, I knew that I was going to start with because. Oh, yeah. um, so with Avatar, we sort of start in media res into this huge conflict because we're a hundred years into what will eventually be called the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. Um, but it started with uh, the Fire Nation, uh, as far as they knew, completely wiping out the Air Nomads. Um, and then we build the show on the foundation of that genocide and then the continuing conflicts and struggles that rose up because of that. Um and then throughout the entirety of just the first 
uh, Avatar The Last Airbender series, uh, there are one, two, three other genocides or attempted genocides. Wow. Yeah, because um, when we meet uh, Katara, she is the only remaining Southern Water Tribe waterbender. Yeah, that's and true. Whereas there are uh, Foggy Swamp waterbenders and Northern Water Tribe benders, they're all distinct cultural hubs. So um, the Fire Nation uh, entirely wiped them out. They try to wipe out the Northern ones at the end of season one. Uh, and then the end of the show is them trying to do to the Earth Kingdom what they did to the Air Nomads. Um, season three is really, really cool because we actually get to see inside of a Fire Nation school. Right. And we get to see like things from their perspective and how they spread their pop propaganda and how they indoctrinate their kids. Well, I think it's really fascinating that in that show, the fact that Zuko has the biggest and most incredibly diverse character arc... God, it's amazing. Going from villain to hero. Yeah. Spoiler, I guess, um, for a very old show. Um, but it's funny that you bring up Fullmetal Alchemist also. As a fan of the anime and and a huge fan of the ma manga, like, the whole show is about death. Like, it, the birth of the concept is the death of their mother. Yes. And so I think that it's really interesting to bring an anime like that up because, like, there's an obsession with death in that show from all of the characters to the, the characters we lose that we love to the massive amount of war and destruction that the homunculi want to bring. I think it's really interesting to bring that up and to focus on, you know, when we watch cartoons for fun, especially we think it's all, it's all in good fun. And we don't often think about the death and destruction that happens in these shows, you know, same with gaming. I know your new book is on video games um, and it's no secret you're a fan of the Mass Effect series. I am a huge fan of the Mass Effect series. And there's this really great Mass Effect <laughs> podcast. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called Reignite. It sounds familiar. Um, for those listeners who don't know, that's my other podcast I do with um, John's spouse, uh, MJ Bradley Lestrange. But the reason I bring up Mass Effect is because that's also a game now that I'm replaying it as an adult. And we're only in the very beginnings of the second game, I realize... There is also a lot of genocide in that game. Uh, not even just the Reapers wanting to wipe out humanity, oh, yeah. but the the Krogan and things that have happened to the Batarians. The entire backstory of the Krogans in the games is uh, just so disheartening to see how the galactic government decided to deal with that. Because they the Salarians culturally uplifted the Krogans so they could fight against the Rachni, and then the Council sat back and allowed the Krogan, to drop millions of tons of nukes on the Rachni homeworld and, uh, as far as we knew, again, wiped them all out. And then, when the Krogans got too uppity as far as they were concerned, they decided to create a genetic mutation that made one in 1,000 of their offspring uh, survive. Everything else just died in stillbirth um, so that they could, you know, stop being a threat uh, to the galaxy and it's just so terrible to see uh, how the Krogan are consistently treated throughout the games um, and I, I don't want to go too much into that in case I, I spoil things for game 3 but uh, the, the culmination of the arc of the Krogan genophage is both phenomenally satisfying for me as a genocide studies scholar and as a, a fan of video games and then also really disappointing in how the heads of state react to you doing what you end up doing well yeah i mean well that's the whole thing about mass effect is it's one of those games where the it essentially portrays the politicians being useless which i'm sure comes from a lot of frustration <laughs> of living in the world we live in yeah um but like and that even no matter what your decisions are in the first game to either eradicate or save them, it doesn't change anything, yeah. more or less. And part of that is a narrative drive. The fact that they want the castle to function in the same way no matter who they are, just so the game can have a streamline. But you're right, and I never thought of that, that it is to genocide. The fact that it's the Rachni who are first killed off, and yep. then the Krogan. And also, like, dealing with the Rachni Queen in the first game it is the first first time as an adult going back to the game where I really was conflicted where this giant bug is being kind to me, but I know what they're capable of, but also has done no harm to me and it and is showing some kind of sentience, some intelligence to yep. communicate, um, which is really fascinating. What made you want to shift from the first book being about cartoons to the second book being about video games? Was it just that you were playing a lot of video games at the time? Uh, so 
part of it was because so I'd been trying to think for a while about because like I knew I, I would at some point want to do a second book, and I was starting to curate a list for uh, a volume two of cartoons, but you know, there's only you know so many that have a lot of like super useful data, and then also that I would want to slog through. Like I made myself get through Digimon Data Squad. <laughs> while I have such a love of the Digimon franchise. It was. It is not a great series. Yeah, Data Squad is one of the weaker ones. Yeah. Um, and, like, I did both of the Full Metal Alchemist series, uh, the original one and Brotherhood, because there was a pretty significant plot divergence. But uh, I was trying to think of, like, what other forms of media I could do. And, like, the problem with doing books is that, one, those the types of books that usually have that are usually like epic fantasy books like yeah. Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time or like uh, Lord of the Rings and that's like hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of pages in the case of The Wheel of Time to get through and then I'd basically just be writing a really big book report on The Wheel of Time right? Um, which I'm, I'm not 100% certain even has exactly what I'd be looking for anyway it's just the single largest series I can think of off the top of my head um, so video games were kind of like cartoons, pretty uh, compact kind of storytelling that still encompasses, uh, in the case of video games like Skyrim, 300 hours of playable content. Yeah, and that's not including the quests that reset and the, the quest lines that loop for no, like... that's not including radiant quests that never actually, actually end, end. Yeah. But uh, and we only did 60 hours of content uh, in, in the chapter on that because I was not going to play 300 hours of Skyrim for you people. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. As someone who loves Skyrim and now, own, well, now only owns it on PC, but used to own it on multiple platforms and is still not 100% convinced that I'm not going to buy it on the Switch at some point. Um, I, like, it, those kinds of games, to me, as an adult, become overwhelming now. Like, one thing that's really satisfying, actually, about playing Mass Effect again for Reignite is, A, I love that series and I've played it so many times. But in recent years, I don't replay anything. The yeah. fact that games are so much longer, that there are so many games that come out every year. Um, I actually do want to have you on my other gaming podcast, Fun and Games, at some point to talk about the new book. Because I think it's it's just an interesting conversation to have about gaming and gaming tropes and yeah. the view of genocide. But something that I talk about on that show a lot is that I don't... Re like, I grew up replaying Chrono Trigger once a year. A tight, beautiful Super Nintendo game that I love that's maybe 10 hours, 20 hours with all the divergent paths and endings and extra stuff to find. Um, and I never do it anymore. Like, I, years ago, I stopped replaying it because... To play the games that I want to play, I I have no time to replay anything yeah. else. Like I can't I can't think of a single PlayStation Four, Xbox One, Switch generation game that I've replayed. Just because I don't, unless I make myself like the Mass Effect series yeah. for for my podcast. Oh yeah, a lot of those games are just the games are becoming a lot more increasingly open world. And yeah, it's just like um, I. Uh, my wife and I have been playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Right, um, which I've heard. And they, they keep putting out new content for it, and I'm very excited for that because the uh, the, the DLC that they've got coming out now is a, is a really cool series that expands on the world a lot and gives you some really cool things to interact with. But even before they started putting out that DLC to do all the missions and to explore this massive map of most of southern Greece. Like, you don't go up into Greece proper, but you've got, like, um, the, the area down where, like, Thermopylae happens and then, like, all the islands down there. It took me over 100 hours of play just to beat the main game. Yeah. Um, and... By the time this DLC is done, I'll probably be closing in on 200 hours of play on Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is the most time I've ever put into any single game uh, ever. And it's it's worth it, but I can't see myself wanting to re reinvest all of that time in... Because they have a new game plus in it, but because you start your new game plus at the level that you finished your old playthrough at, there's not a lot of incentive yeah. to go explore everything because now I don't have to level up so that I can go to this one area because everything is scaled for my 
now maxed out level. Right. So there's there's no incentive to explore anymore. Well, yeah, I find that with modern games, it's tough to just go back right into it because, A, I, I'm sure you're the same. I have a list of games I want to play. A wish list on my Switch, a wish list on my PS4, a wish list on Amazon. So many good games these games. Right. Uh, like, so last year I played about 32 new games, and that includes re-releases on the Switch. The games I've never played before that were re-released. Um, 200 games came out last year, and I played 32 that is such a small fraction of the amount of games that come out. Yeah. And like, unlike back in the day with the NES and the Super Nintendo, like there, there were over 700 games, but we could safely say at least half of them were shovelware. Games that were just put out that were probably not of any quality. Yeah. And even still, I don't think I've played more than 100 games on the NES. Because I played probably all of the name, the first, first party name brand Nintendo stuff, and then like the big third party stuff like Capcom games and all of that. And now it just seems so overwhelming to me to try and do any of that. Like, I, I have to imagine at least with a research project like this book, um, The History of Genocide and Video Games, it at least encouraged you to play things that you may not have played before or that you might have passed on yeah. or, or that you felt you didn't have time for. So half of half of the, the, the book is is just the Mass Effect series. So I did Mass Effect right. 1, 2, 3, and Andromeda. And then I put other things in there. Um, and I did, uh, I did Skyrim. Um, which I've, I've played before and I've beaten multiple times because it, it does have replay value because there are so many different ways that you can approach conflicts. I saw back when the game first came out, someone did a pacifist run. Yeah. They played the entire game just using the spells Charm and Fear and the higher level versions of that so that they never had to kill anything that the plot didn't require them to kill, uh, which was really, really very cool. I mean, it's so difficult. I tried that, and I got bored with it, and then I just started shooting things with a bow from 500 meters away, which is what I always end up doing <laughs> in Skyrim. I always end up going sneaky archer, uh, as I think a lot of people wind up doing. But then there was also um, uh, Pillars of Eternity, which was recommended to me by uh, my friend Michael Barnett. It was the one of the most successfully funded... Uh, Kickstarter video games of all time. Yes. It's on the top mm -hmm. 10 list of that. Um, and plot-wise, it is a phenomenal game. Uh, the story is very open. There's a lot of different things. Um, you build up uh, reputation, both in just as a general person and with specific groups, which is a really, really fun mechanic. Gameplay-wise, the combat was very geared towards... Um, real-time strategy. Okay, It yeah. was very geared towards, like, it had an isometric view, kind of like the old Baldur's Gate games, mm -hmm. which I loved, but instead of in Baldur's Gate where you are just controlling a character and going around basically playing the video game version of Dungeons & Dragons, you have a big party of, uh, f like, four people at a time, and the point of it is that you, you control each of the things that they do, and you have them fight in the most, or you can just... Give, set everyone's AI to auto combat and just let them kill everything, which is what I did because I, I cannot. <laughs> when you play a tabletop game, yes, combat is going to take three hours uh, of real world time, and then three hours of game time is going to take you five minutes. I cannot sit through hours and hours of just combat in what is otherwise a pretty huge game. So right. That one was tough to get through. Then we did Fallout 4, which I know a lot of people don't like in the Fallout franchise, but I thought that it was uh, amazing for a lot of different uh, reasons, especially how it approached the factions and the ones that it gave you access to. Um, and then we did Deus Ex Mankind Divided, which despite being the fifth game in the franchise, I just decided to jump in there because... I mean, all of them kind of give you a narrative synopsis anyway. Yeah, I, I was able to very quickly um, just sort of summarize the, the salient points from uh, For Mankind Divided was Human Revolution because uh, just the end of that sort of leads into the issues that you're experiencing in Mankind Divided but beyond just the, the, the last final like boss conflict in Human Revolution you don't need to know what else is going on in that right. world um, and that was a, a really fun game because it was the only one of the eight that I covered that didn't give you control over your character's perspective. Right. right. In Fallout, in Pillars, in Mass Effect, you control the kind of person that your your character is. And while in uh, Deus Ex there were conversation choices that you could make, 
Adam Jensen was set in his perspectives and you just had a little bit of wiggle room inside of that. So that was really cool to see. Yeah, it's interesting um, that you bring up these large games and how you interact with them. And what I'm curious about, because I haven't, I haven't had a chance to look at the video game book yet, but ha do you discuss or mention Undertale at all? Uh, no, but Undertale is on the list for Volume 2 of video games because uh, Undertale has... Um, a, a genocide run. And right. It's, it's it's built into the mechanics of the thing. It's not like something someone just decided to do. It is a, a set way that you can play. You can play a mixed, a pacifist, or a genocidal playthrough. Um, and the the I love the mechanic that Undertale does because a friend of mine uh, talks about this game extensively. Um, but there's there's music going on in the background all the time, mm -hmm. and then as you kill all of the... Because the point of the genocide right is to literally kill every Everything. single monster in the entire game. And the way that you know that you've accomplished that is as there are fewer and fewer enemies on that part of the map, the music gets quieter and slows down and then it's gone when there yeah. are no more enemies. And that is uh, such a good storytelling element. I definitely want to go back into Undertale because it's just a fun game and it's pretty quick. You can get through it in like a day. Like yeah. 10 hours of play you can you can do a mixed run of that game yeah I bring up Undertale because it's just a game that's very often talked about and like I went into it filled with spoilers because I'd watched other YouTubers engage with it because I was more fascinated by it than actually playing it yep. when it came out on the Switch I finally bought it so I knew that there was a reason to do a pacifist run and I'm trying to avoid spoilers just because I think it's a game worth experiencing but like I had known well let's try and do a pacifist run and you actually can't do a complete pacifist run on your first playthrough play due to story that. reasons, yeah. which I think is also brilliant. But what's really brilliant about it is I killed a character early in the game by accident. I engaged her in battle and didn't realize that I had to do... I could do other things to get out of it. I thought I had to fight her. Yeah. And when she died, I felt horrible and resetted it. And this is within the first five to ten minutes of the game. When you go back in, Flowey, the first character you interact with, comments on how you felt bad and reset the game. So all of the data in this game is pervasive. It continues. Yeah. And so it's, to me, a spiritual successor to Mass Effect in the sense that everything's connected. Yes. Like the, re the thing that made Mass Effect fascinating to me, and I think it's fascinating that you covered in your book, is that it's the only game series I know of where everything you do in the first game affects the second game, which affects the third game. All of them are connected, and all of the results make a difference yeah. on the later playthroughs. And in certain ways, like it, it doesn't, because like regardless of, of there's going to be a slight spoiler, you all can deal with it, you'll figure it out when you play Mass Effect 3. Regardless of what you decide with Arachni Queen in 1, there will be Arachni Queen in 3. Yeah. Whether you kill her or not, there will be one there that you have to deal with. So like there are ways in which Mass Effect sort of skirts around that because they have necessary plot elements that they right. want to deal with but um, that's um, one of the reasons why I prefer Mass Effect to to Dragon Age in a lot of ways I love Dragon Age because I get to be like a, a wizard and I get to set things on fire <laughs> and like call lightning down from the skies and there are some really good depictions of racism in, in those games especially in Inquisition if you play an elf but you play a different character in each one and yeah. so the decisions that you make in one if you import that playthrough will give you some side quests to do in right. two and like they'll be talked about you know in passing in three but there's no real connective tissue that holds all of these together um except for a, a thing in in three that involves the main character uh in two making an appearance but like there's, yeah there's no there's no, it doesn't, it doesn't flow together like Mass Effect does, which is a phenomenal and fascinating thing to see. Yeah, it's one of those things that's always been very interesting to me about any media is how stuff connects together. You know, you haven't done anything with movies yet, although I'm sure it's on your list just like anything else. But the the idea that we live in a world where cinematic universes exist, they always sort of did, but with the Marvel being so yeah. pervasive and the things, everything being connected, I think that's what I love about the Marvel universe more than anything else is it's reminiscent of what I got to experience Mass Effect, that all these things matter to other things. Um, when getting ready to write the video game book or even the, the cartoon book, was it more important to have things that might play off each other or be interconnected? Or did you just pick those things because they were the best, best depictions of genocide in those 
areas. So, so in cartoons, I mostly just um, what I what I actually did was first I tried to crowdsource this uh, the list. Like I went out to people right. and I said like find me the problem with crowdsourcing a list from uh, layman is that they won't always see things in quite the right way, or they'll see things and think like that. I think that that is, but from a professional standpoint, it's not. That's how Grave of uh, Grave of the Fireflies wound up in there, despite not being uh, involving an actual genocide. It involves uh, the firebombing of the city of Kobe in March of 1945, um, but um, it, it has a special place in the book because of, of how people thought that it was about genocide when it when it actually wasn't. Um, I did both of the uh, Full Metal Alchemist series, like I mentioned, uh, and then the movie Conqueror Shambhala based on the original series, not because they were interconnected, but more because I wanted to see how uh, the uh, 2003 series diverged from Brotherhood in 2009, because when animes catch up with the manga, um, where that's being written, they have to diverge the plot, and if they can, they'll swing it back in uh, as like the manga, you know, gets far enough ahead, but Full Metal Alchemist couldn't do that. So yeah. the plot in the 2003 series goes way off the rails in in really weird ways. Mm-hmm. Um, for video games, uh, I, I wanted to do the whole Mass Effect series, not so much because it was all connected. Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess because it was all connected. Like that's really the easiest way of. of uh, talking about that because like it is one whole series and the decisions and the genocides that i deal with in one are expanded upon in two and three like you get to learn more and more and more about like the rachni wars about the krogan rebellions Mm -hmm. and about uh the morning war between the the quarians uh and the get that was one of my favorite things uh to deal with in in one and in three um, especially talking to Tally about it, because uh, if you ask her like about the Geth uh, in in one, and like she'll tell you like I don't know much more than you could get from like you know any of the the, the books or like any of the council records that are about this, um, and she's dead set on the idea that the Quarians had to like try and wipe out the Geth that like there was like it was it was them or us. Um, if, if we didn't wipe them out, they would have risen up and they would have destroyed us. And like, it's, it's such a, a clear parallel to every single real world genocidal narrative uh, ever that um, like it's, it, is, it is staggering to see. Um, and we ignore these things in video games and in cartoons all the time because it's, it's just a story and it's a fun thing. And we just want to go, and we want to shoot the bad guys, and we want right. to like throw grenades around and and shoot like space magic around. And while yes, we should do that, and that's a lot of fun, uh, and we should still just enjoy the video games, cartoons. It is important to, at a certain point, stop and ask, especially in video games where you get to make choices. Why are you making this choice, and and what does this say about you as a person that you are able to? Uh, you know, bathe this Rachni queen in acid without really blinking. About yeah. It. Like, and yes, it's a video game character, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, our, our fiction reflects our reality. Well, yeah, that's why it was so important for me and MJ when we engaged in Reignite and started to create it that we play the characters true to ourselves and the decisions we'd make because yes. then there's some weight to it. Yeah, that's what I did for the book too. I made not like, just did a, a pure Paragon run like I used to do when I was younger. I made like the choices that, that I, as as John Lestrange, uh, would make, uh, which in some circumstances were much more violent than I would have when I was younger. Right, same. Or, or like things that would have been easy for me to commit violence to get the better outcome yeah. or easier outcome. I didn't take this playthrough because I was like, that, that person's still a person. And if they're not fighting in this war, but they're still on that side, maybe I can't kill them as easily as I thought I could. Things like that. Um, I want to go back a little bit. So you're a teacher, yes. you're a historian, um, you have a strong presence on the internet. Um, have you, uh, was that always the goal when you started school? Did you always want to go into the history of genocide and genocidal studies and, and all of that stuff? Or did it just kind of work out that way? So when I originally started my, uh, Holocaust and genocide studies master's program, it wasn't out of a fascination with Holocaust genocide studies or out of like a, a passion to, to talk about this in a you know scholarly or academic way. 
it was because it was the only history master's program that my university offered. Oh, and wow. I wanted a master's degree in history so that I could teach at the college level. And then it became through, you know, continued exposure to it, uh, a, a thing that I became passionate about. But it started off as just a matter of convenience. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's funny how when you're pursuing things that you're really interested in that you you don't always know where that'll take you. Yeah. And the fact that you're now at this place, I mean, did you ever imagine that you would write books? Was that a thing that was ever a I thing? I never imagined that I would write nonfiction. I've been trying to write fiction since I was in the fourth grade, <laughs> and I've never finished a single thing. Um, but no, I, I, I never imagined uh, when I started doing, like getting this master's degree that I would wind up uh, you know, having self-published two books and and be constantly shouting at people on the internet about genocide. Um, do you feel like, as a historian and as someone who's writing these books and continuing to make content like this and and try and engage in the world, which us living in the U.S. can be a scary thing? Yeah. Um, do you feel this obligation to educate? I mean, you're a teacher and you are a historian. Do you feel this need to? Put, like I noticed that a lot of your tweets are about certain articles and certain and certain information, parts of our government that people don't know about, things like that. Yep. Do you just feel this innate need to educate and to teach? Uh, so I, I think um, sort of the, the best way to, to sum this up is uh, with a, a Patrick Stewart quote, um, not as a character, just as Patrick Stewart himself, uh, when he was speaking out about uh, feminism and equality and, uh, and abortion rights, uh, was... Um, it seems in this country that no one will listen to you if you're not an old white man. And because I am an old white man, I might as well use my voice for something good. And while I'm not an old white man, I am in a significantly privileged position in uh, American society. Um, I have a, a good education. I'm uh, straight and, and white and male. And so the, the, the consequences that so many people uh, in this country uh, face for speaking out can't really touch me. I am in a large way um, politically bulletproof. Right. So I might as well uh, tank as best I can uh, <laughs> in, in this particular conflict. I mean, that makes sense, though, to me. I mean, I try and do the same, although I tend to take the, the path of elevating those voices that are more influential or louder than mine. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's really important. And I did see that quote from Patrick Stewart, and, and I do agree. I think that at the end of the day, and that's why also... I'm trying to get better about I'm very I'm I'm very outgoing and boisterous, but I try to follow MJ's lead on Reignite, um, just because I don't need to be the most prominent voice or the voice heard most. Um, I'm happy to talk, and I'm glad that I engage with everyone who listens to any of the shows that I do, all four of them. Like clearly, I like to talk, but I think also what I love about especially two of my shows is that I have fem queer female co-hosts who have a lot of opinions are very strongly opinionated and brilliant and smart and that if my existing and my existing network can help elevate them and get the word out and let get people listening to them specifically i also yeah. am very equally happy to do it that is uh the great part about uh facebook is that so much of the uh political news and political opinions that are shared on facebook are done in meme format and a lot of it is screenshots of um, just things that people have said on Twitter that someone screenshotted and pulled over to Facebook and posted there so I can find uh, those, uh, I don't want to say alternative voices, but those voices that are not straight and white and male and I can use my platform to spread them yeah. through there. Um, but like I, I do not have a, a podcast, so like my uh, ability to spread... Uh, other people's voices is limited to uh, citing them in my own research right. or in you know uh, linking to uh, articles or research uh, that they have themselves have written. Um, I want to shift the conversation back to your book writing okay. and the history and ask. So you say that you have a cartoons too and a video games too, both like lists that you are curating and yes. figuring out. So obviously those are coming. Are those the next thing you are, you're going to work on or do you have another project in the works currently, another book? Um, so I, I had started uh, at one point trying to write a uh, critical analysis of internet memes and how they're used as propaganda, but that sort of fell by... Uh, the wayside as I just got uh, just 
numb to just the <laughs> sheer volume of terrible right-wing memes. Yeah, it's rough. Uh, the, the, the classic line on the right-wing is that the left can't meme, but, I mean, while the right can meme, nothing that they say is is accurate or, or true, yeah. uh, which is what makes it good propaganda because it's not designed to make you think about it. It's designed to elicit an emotional response. Right. And when you can bypass... Uh, the, the the thinking part of someone's brain and just go right to the lizard brain and say you should be afraid of this thing people are so much more likely to believe them um, so they, they are very effective at it and I, I wish they would stop because it's it's uh, harming a lot of people um, I'm trying to think of like other different types of, of popular media that I can uh, examine genocide through uh, like cartoons and video games they are the easiest ones to do it in because uh, again they are very well episodic yeah um so probably cartoons too or video games too will be the next product unless i can find something else that is uh you know that i can take in bites like right. i can with a cartoon series and a single video game yeah i feel like uh it's t- like you were talking about the difficulties with books i feel like movies would be a similar difficulty because yeah. you there are so many different genres of films so many different films in general that you would probably have to take it by genre just to narrow it down. Yeah. So we did. Uh, we didn't do movies specifically, but I did do uh, three animated feature films in uh, cartoons. Uh, we had the Full My Lockers movie, Conqueror of Shambhala. We had Grave of the Fireflies and Titan AE is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I'm saying we as if... Um, it's just me. <laughs> it's just me. You and, and your audience. Yes. Um, so... Um, but yeah, again, the problem with movies is also that so many of them are just about like real life things, right? Uh, like like Schindler's List, uh, which I, I talked about on another podcast uh, with Jeff and KC, uh, is is about a real life thing that that actually happened, right? Um, and so it, there are a lot fewer, especially in live action movies fictional accounts of of genocide that I can analyze and there's just like real things that that have actually happened and that movie is in and of itself already doing the work that I would do right in just representing it that way right it's um, shining a light on that genocide and the shit that happened yeah. and so and which is essentially what you're trying to do with this other stuff yeah um, I think that's really interesting though that for you video games and and cartoons were the easier things to kind of engage with. What I'm wondering is also, do you think it's something you could do with like non or less interactive mediums like art, like specifically like paintings or drawings or music? Like, could you do a book on music, a genocide, you know, discussions of genocide and music? Like I know Rammstein has done songs about Germany's past and yeah. genocides and things like that. Like, is that a thing you think you could ever wrap your brain around? Uh, I mean... It's, it is a, a thing I could wrap my brain around in theory. It's just uh, cartoons and video games were very much already in my wheelhouse. Right. I had a lot of exposure to them um, just throughout my entire life. Uh, and, and whereas uh, both you and MJ are, are very much music brain people, <laughs> I, am, I am not. Most of what I know about music actually comes from one of you two. <laughs> so um, it is, it is not something that I am geared towards being able to do. Right. Uh, and then with uh, like art, like paintings or sculptures, a lot of that is is so very uh, subjective. Right. Like with a cartoon and, and genocide being in it, it just, it either is or, or, it, or isn't. it isn't. Whereas yeah. with art, uh, there are so many different ways that art can be uh, interpreted. Also just from, uh, just like, it is a single painting, and whereas like you can analyze that in a lot of different ways, and there might be a large number of elements inside of it that can be analyzed, um, there would probably be, uh, as opposed to 13 case studies for cartoons and 8 for video games, dozens for a book on, on art, just because of how um, contained each one is. Uh, also, again, art analysis is, is not uh, super much my wheelhouse. That is a whole different major that I did not get. Yeah, you don't have that degree yet. 
God, no. Just right now, I'm just taking courses online through Coursera because there are just dozens of them that you can do for free. Like uh -huh. I took one run through uh, Johns Hopkins on uh, reducing gun violence in America, which was the uh, inspiration for the most recent article that I posted on my website. And I'm taking one now on game theory, which involves a lot more math than I <laughs> thought. And I am not good with the math. Um, talk about your website a little bit. So you do blog as well, and you yes. write articles. Um, I'm guessing. So did the website come before the books, um, or after? When did? <laughs> so the website came up because I. Uh, this was back in 2017. I think the, the website came first because I advertised the book on the website when it was published. Um, I had made a. a this is back in the time when, like, we were first talking about, uh, you know, should we punch Nazis? Like, Richard Spencer <laughs> had been decked twice. Yeah. Uh, and I celebrated both times, and it was, you know, it was, it was a Same. great day. Um, uh, but there was a lot of discussion about, like, should we do that? Is is that an ethical or moral thing uh, to, to do to these people who are, you know, exercising their quote-unquote right to free speech? So I uh, posted a, a long uh, Facebook rant on the uh, ethics of, you know, decking a Nazi. Um, and it, it got shared a lot, uh, like a couple hundred times. I was, I was pretty proud of that, I guess, if I can uh, humble brag about that. <laughs> on a Facebook post I did that did well. Um, and then I decided from that point that, like, oh, I guess I, I could do more uh, things like this. Uh, and then I should have a, a place where they can all be found and, and shared from that's not just like a, a Facebook post that I had to hunt down each, each time that I did like three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so then I, I made the website to post that there, and then I, I started doing uh, more stuff, and uh, I don't post nearly as often as, as I would like. I had a lot of activity when I first started it because, of course, when you first start a new product, you're very excited about it. You're very passionate. You throw a lot of energy behind it. Sure. And then as more and more time go, goes on on this continuing thing, it gets harder to find things to shout about and things that I am qualified to shout about. Um, so this is actually the first uh, article that's gone up in quite a few months. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's tiring is is also the the, the problem uh, like this last one I, I spent um, like uh, a couple of weeks doing the online course and then I it took me uh, three days to actually like go through all of the research and, and put it all together and write it out in a coherent uh, thing so it's just it's very time consuming to, sure. to do this for a thing that no one is paying me for. Right. A thing that you're doing as a passion project, yeah. a thing I am familiar with. And passion projects are, are very, very great, but we live in a capitalist hellscape, and <laughs> I eat a lot. Yeah, that's true. You're a big dude who needs, he needs his nutrition. Um, so uh, I think that the last thing I want to ask before we start to wrap up is we live in a world where it's very easy to be overwhelmed by the shit going down yes. in America and all over the world. And you're someone who I know engages in it almost heroically pretty daily to try and take down idiots on the internet, um, which I appreciate as someone who does not have the spoons for that. But what might be your suggestion for those people who maybe can't do that or want to engage or fight back but don't have the wherewithal to take it to the trolls and take them down? What would be your suggestion to help uh, engage or boost other conversations? Okay, so uh, so th this particular phenomenon where we, we sort of get overwhelmed by these things and it, it becomes too big of a problem to deal with uh, is called within psychology either psychic numbing or compassion fatigue. The bigger the problem, like one person who, who you know gets uh, shot on the street is, is a tragedy. But we now have like almost one mass shooting per day in the United States and right. it's just it's too big to continue to care about because they, they become numbers in, instead of individual people. And it's so much harder to make ourselves continue to care about massive numbers of, of things. And despite years of pushback against this, we've had no real substantive you know, change in, in how we control access to firearms in this country. Um, and it, it, it can get very, very overwhelming. I recommend any time that you, you can 
to uh, find a, a, assuming you're not allergic to them, find a furry creature <laughs> and, and shove your face into that cat's belly. Um, uh, my wife and I live in what we call the house of a thousand cats, so I have ready access to small, cute, fuzzy things uh, that you know can can help uh, you know empathically absorb the horror of, of what I am experiencing. Um, I mean, self care is so 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 important, and it, like if you don't have the spoons to engage, don't don't <laughs> don't damage yourself because you feel like you have to you know have a have a dog in this fight. Um, it, even and especially if like these issues personally affect you, because that's just going to drain you so much faster. Um, like speak when you can, and and recognize when like you just you can't right now for whatever reason, and that's that's okay to not be able to you know keep throwing punches because. We, we can't all be Captain America. I can do this all day. Because, right. you know, sometimes you got to sleep. You got to eat. You got to uh, take a bubble bath and read a silly book and, and watch a fun cartoon just to enjoy a fun cartoon. Um, I, I don't really have any solid advice because, again, like, I am so significantly less impacted by so many of these issues that what I would do to, you know, uh, take a step back from this, some people can't. Right, Or, sure. like, it doesn't apply to them, but... I mean, uh, know your limits, do self-care, have delicious chocolate, um, <laughs> right? In the mortal words of, of Remus Lupin, eat this, you'll feel better. Um, <laughs> that's fair. I think yeah. that's all very good advice. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's do some plugs. Tell people first where they can find the books, the best place for them to purchase them. Okay. Uh, the best place to purchase them is to just go to Amazon.com and search for either genocide in video games or genocide in cartoons. Uh, they are going to be uh, among the first, if not the first things that pop up there. The books are called Representations of Genocide in Cartoons and Representations of Genocide in Video Games, both available on Amazon in paperback or uh, ebook format. Awesome. And then uh, your website and where people can find you on the internet. Uh, so you can find me on Facebook at uh, John Lestrange Historian, or you can find my website uh, at uh, www.johnlestrange.wordpress.com um, or on Twitter at uh, Prof. John Strange. Um, those are all uh, places that you can find me. Awesome. Um, John, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Um, I definitely don't get to hang out with you enough, so I'm glad I could use my podcast as an excuse to hang out with you. You, you live so far away. <laughs> I and mean, driving in Brooklyn is not as bad as Manhattan, but still pretty bad. That's fair. I mean, you are in the middle of the wasteland known as New Jersey, so. It's a nice place. <laughs> um, the last thing I'll ask you to do is do our sign off. Um, I have this phrase I like to talk to say, which is music is life and life is good. This idea that as long as you're creating, life is good. And you can live a good life. So if you could sign us off, I would really appreciate that. Sure. Uh, music is life and life is good. That's it for this episode of Crash Chords Autographs. Our theme music is by Michael Kill. Our logo was designed by Case Aiken and Joey Amans. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. You'll help us reach more listeners. Questions, comments, or guest recommendations? Email matt.storm at crashchords.com or hit us up on Twitter at Crash Chords Web. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque, the podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit WeBurlesque.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good. <laughs> <laughs>